There is a war going on in America, and you are the spoil of war. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's a fierce battle being waged for you. Billions of dollars are being spent to win this war. Now, I'm not talking a political or a uh, ideological war or just a war between firepower where it's leveled against other firepower. It's a war of power and influence. Companies in certain industries are at war and the amount of power amassed by these companies is staggering. Companies in this industry um, seek to uh, pursue your attention as their prize. They spend billions of dollars within the tech and social media industry for your attention. They have armies of a few hundred people up to 100,000 people. This war, though, isn't fought in Silicon Valley. The battleground is much closer to home, where most wars are fought over land or territory. This battle is not for more dirt. You and I are the territory. Our attention is the territory, and whether we realize it or not, we may unintentionally be choosing sides in this war. The weapons used in this war are in our pockets or our purses or our desks at home. The goal of this war, again, your attention. Your attention, where your eyes are directed, where your thoughts linger, where you find value and where your heart fixates is what tech companies all over Silicon Valley are fighting in a war for. Your attention is the product that these companies fight for because our attention is valuable. This is because our attention is the precursor to adoration. Um, if they can get your attention, they can make you aware of their product, which will lead you to having a sort of adoration or, or a desire for their product. Our attention is valuable because it determines where we spend our money, where we will grow loyalties, and who we will be formed by. And whether you like it or not, you will be formed by who or what you give your attention to. Makes me think of the fun and ever interesting uh, question that grown-ups ask to children. How often do we ask, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's a great question. The answers to this question provoke so much adorableness. <laughs> or fear, depending on the child. So often... The answers have to do with careers or lifestyles uh, that their attention has been captivated by. Their attention makes them aware of how at least seemingly cool people in that profession are, and so they adore that career or that lifestyle. They want to become a, a nurse or a fireman or an Olympic ice skater or a basketball player. They dress up and act like they're the most proficient nurse or fireman in the world, saving the world. And oh my goodness, when they want to dress up for Halloween, it's just too cute. Little adults, little grown-ups running around looking like, they're, like they have a career. <laughs> it's so cute. Let me, actually, I want to see a raise of hands. How many of you remember what you said you wanted to be when you were three or four? How many of you remember what you said? 
okay? And how many of you, keep your hand up, if you're in that profession? All right, all right, I've got a couple. Wonderful. Well, not the majority, but definitely a few of us are. Um, so, so seeing this, we often, I mean, we ask this question, and what we can honestly do is we can unintentionally imply that growing up is, is finite. So there's a misconception in this question that uh, what you want to do when you grow up, uh, the, the, the misconception is basically that um, growing up is not a process, but it's a destination, and that once you become that thing, or once you become something when you've grown up, then Boom, you've made it, and you've either succeeded in becoming what you wanted to be when you were a four-year-old, or you didn't. And how often we even act like this in our Christian faith. Hey, I've become a Christian. Boom, I'm good for life. It's not a process, it's a destination. I'm here, um, I, I've made it. Now, one more caveat. I'm not saying that we can't achieve and become a boss, or become a business owner, or a nurse, or a mother. Those are real achievements. But we mustn't confuse our achievements or our failures, with who we are and what we most deeply desire. If we do, we'll find ourselves on the hamster wheel, never growing as a person. Who we are is different than what we do. What we do is important, but who you are is more important. What we often, and what we do often, affects who we become. What we do affects who we become. So we must slow down. And as Christians, we must give our attention to Jesus, beholding him for who he is. When we practice the way of Jesus, we spend time with him in his word, in prayer, in singing, in fellowship. When we do that, we will become like Jesus. Paul knew this all too well, and so that's why he essentially said in this one singular verse that we become what we behold that we become what we behold. Ben read it for us already this morning and we'll be meditating on it. And so I wanna go ahead and read it, the verse again, and we'll read it a couple more times because we wanna make sure that we we dive in and, and figure out how is God gonna change us from this verse. So if you look back at verse 18 with me, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, so the big idea of our time together this morning will be becoming Christ-like is only found in beholding Christ. Becoming Christ-like is only found in beholding Christ. Now, we're gonna have a little bit different of a sermon this morning. We're gonna have two main points, becoming Christ-like and beholding Christ, and we're not gonna have any extra slides because I want us to focus on how am I becoming Christ-like and how am I beholding Christ? We really aren't saying a whole lot different than what we've been saying in this whole Rhythms of Renewal series already. That, that true renewal is found only in Christ. We're just taking it another level deeper and saying that, that the only way to find this renewal into Christ-likeness is by beholding God's glory. So let's break this down and start with looking at what becoming Christ-like means. So number one, becoming Christ-like. 
you'll look back with me uh, at the verse, chapter three, verse 18, we'll, uh, with me again, we'll take a moment and absorb some of what Paul packs into this really short verse. And we all, he says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul tells us, rear at the get-go, that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into his image. It says the same image, which refers back to the Lord. When we behold the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the image of the Lord. This is not a transformation into a different kind of image or a blander image of sameness where we are just nice Christians running around. One commentator has said that this image is a regaining of our lost humanity, of our fallen dignity. And so, biblically speaking, this takes us back to Genesis 3 and reminds us of the image that we were formed into in the very beginning, the true self that we were given at the very beginning. This image uh, that we're being formed into is not foreign to us then. It's not a foreign image, it's primal, it's original. God originally designed us to fully, perfectly reflect him. And through the fall, that image has been shattered, that mirror has been shattered. And we, as it were, as we behold the glory of the Lord, the pieces are coming back together to resemble a fuller image of who we already are, but sin has marred. And so we're not saying that we're able to, in any kind of new agey way, uh, look for our true self by looking within ourself. No. We know that our hearts are deceptive, deceitfully wicked. And it's only through that sin that mars our image, and so we can't look for within in order to find who we truly are. We're lost, we're our hearts are deceived, but by the Holy Spirit, your dignity is being restored. You are being renewed into beholding Christ. And so we don't come or become our true selves by looking for our true selves. And Paul said, doesn't say that we're transformed by really looking hard within or working really hard, but by looking to Christ. And C.S. Lewis does a really good job of capturing this in his response to this type of thinking that we can look inward for our true self, he says in Mere Christianity, until you have given up your life to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. He says, your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. And so we do. We do as Christians. That's what we do, Christian brother and sister. We gaze at Christ. Only in gazing at Christ and looking to him, are we formed into Christ's image? Do we become Christ-like? So Paul, in this, describes becoming, becoming. And in this, we, we actually, that's where the gospel of legalism begins to go off the rails. 
The legalistic gospel tells you that you must prove that you can be Christ-like by doing the right things not the wrong th- and not the wrong things. It tells you that God will only be pleased with you if you go to church, serve a lot, read your Bible, and pray every day, and then his love for you will grow, grow, grow. Do you think that way? Maybe, maybe you have people in your life that you know that's how they deal with you, that if you do something nice, then they'll be kind. You'll get their love. If you do something wrong, love is withheld from you. So often our experiences with others taint and influence our relationship with God. So let me state this very clearly. If you believe that God loves you less when you miss a day of reading your Bible, you have bought into the gospel of legalism. Listen to me. If that were true, the yoke of Jesus that Pastor Steve just prayed for us, the yoke of Jesus would be difficult and his burden would be crushing. At many other churches, I get fired for saying this, you don't have to read your Bible in order for God to love you. You don't have to pray every day for Jesus to actually be your savior. Your salvation is not in limbo and it's up to you to make it effective. The legalistic gospel preaches do more, look better, know more, and try harder. But Jesus' gospel is about becoming Christ-like by beholding Christ. It's about the person, not the behavior. It's about who you are. If you've received the Spirit and you are walking in genuine faith in the risen Lord Jesus, you can be confident that you are beloved child adopted by God. Now let me balance this out a little bit. If you're a fully adopted child of the king, you will have as one of your deepest desires to become like the king, to become like your dad. The gospel is opposed to earning God's love. It's not opposed to effort in God's love. Think of my son, Cannon, who uh, just, I mean, at every turn, he just wants to be like me. And I didn't try to say, hey, dude, do this. But he just, he, everything I do just regularly around the house, he'll regularly just follow me as he sees me do things. He'll, he'll see me throw a football or fake shooting a basketball in the house or racing cars across the kitchen floor. And he will want to be right there at my hip. He copies everything I do, and sometimes with astonishing accuracy, and I'm proud to say that as a basketball player, I love the fact that this past week, he started shooting a tiny little basketball up into the air and holding a (laughs) follow-through. I mean, the boy is destined for greatness. (laughs) I didn't tell him to do that. He saw me do that. He said, oh, that's what it looks like. When we are in God's family, we have God as our father and we look to behold him, we become like him as we behold him. This is what Paul talks about. He's in another letter, Ephesians 5, 1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
God actually invites us into the process of becoming like him. We won't ever do it perfectly, but there will be progress. Cannon still has some work to do on his form. His left hand is a little too much into his shot. But again, this is a process. Who you're becoming is a process. This is not in the first instance about a destination. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a destination, but in the first instance, this gives us hope that we are being changed into a sanctified, more whole version of ourselves, into the original version of ourselves. But it's also about a destination because as we behold the risen Christ, we are instilled with hope that one day we will finally be fully changed like him. And as the risen Christ was glorified, so we too shall be glorified. And so until our day comes to cross the valley of the shadow of death, we press on to become more and more and more and more like Jesus. The preacher Paul Washer has said, Christ is not some minor accessory that transforms our life and improves it in receiving the gospel. He becomes our life. This isn't about some New Year's resolution that I'm encouraging you towards. This is a life that I'm pushing you to embrace. It's not instantaneous. Christian maturity will not just at the snap of a finger happen. And so if you're looking for a Weight Watchers or Atkins-like diet, you'll be sorely disappointed where results show up in a week. As someone has said, the day you plant the seed is not the day you eat the fruit. A seed needs soil, it needs moisture, it needs sunlight, it needs seasons and time before it begins to bear fruit. And so becoming Christ-like will be proven over the long haul. As you behold and abide in Christ, this is what Jesus referred to in John 15 as he gave his disciples a teaching in the upper room. He uh, uses an analogy for himself as a true vine and says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This teaching of Jesus is mostly what Spurgeon was referring to when he said, nearness to God brings likeness to God. The more you see God, the more of God will be seen in you. Let me say that one more time. Nearness to God brings likeness to God. The more you see God, the more of God will be seen in you. So let me ask you, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? If you take an honest assessment of your life, where does your attention dwell? What are you beholding? It could be that something or someone other than Christ has your heart. Your heart has been beholding. It could be entertainment. It could be whatever you were watching on a screen last night or, or scrolling through on your screen. Today is the day that you need to hear this message. Your deepest desires will never be met in that thing 
or that person, but beholding the glory of the risen Christ is the only source of deep satisfaction. Draw from that well. The only way to become Christ-like is by beholding Christ. And so this leads us to our second point today, and that's just number two, beholding Christ. Becoming Christ-like, beholding Christ. Now Paul mentions in this verse that we are able to behold the glory of the Lord because we have unveiled faces. What does he mean by this? I am confident that Paul is not referring to a post-COVID mandate, mask mandate situation here. Paul is just, just got done finished talking about the glory that was in the old covenant. This glory represented by Moses when he beheld the glory of the Lord, his face shone so brightly that, that the people of Israel demanded that he actually wear a veil out of fear. You can find this in Exodus 34, but Paul explains that though there was glory, even a bright glory in the old covenant, oh, the new covenant in Christ that Christ inaugurated is even more glorious than that of the glory of the old covenant. The glory of the old covenant, he kind of says, is, is basically washed out. It's like near nothing. He concludes that, Paul concludes that if one desires to be in relationship with God, but reads Moses while denying Christ, that person's understanding, literally their heart, is veiled. That's verse 15. And then when a person confesses Christ, submitting to his authority, the veil is removed. Verses that you can find that in verse 14. And so he says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There are multiple ways that we can behold the glory of the risen Christ. The most fundamental way that can even be seen in this passage is in beholding him in the pages of scripture. Look back a couple verses at verse 14 with me. If you have your Bibles open, chapter three, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when, the, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains, remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So they, while they read the old covenant, so, so notice the way that they beheld the veiled glory of the old covenant. They read Moses. But through Christ, if the veil is removed, then Christians are able to behold God's glory when reading scripture, all of scripture. So most fundamentally, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are where we go to behold the glory of the Lord. There are other ways that we can behold God's glory in prayer, in singing, in scripture-saturated songs, in reflection, and in community. But Paul here talks about reading scripture. So let's hone in and focus just a little bit on that. So many of us think about the Bible as merely a list of do's and don'ts. I've even heard it describe the alliteration, basic instructions before leaving earth. That is not only what the Bible is. See that our scriptures are infinitely more than that. They are a pathway to see God. The scriptures are like bay windows of a chateau in the Swiss Alp 
valley. That just as you look out and you see the glory of the Swiss Alps, the scriptures are the bay windows to God's glory. Jen Wilkin has said in her recent book, God has chosen to reveal himself through the scriptures and through Christ. We know that the we know the truth about who God is by becoming acquainted with his revelation, by learning the Bible, and by measuring all teaching against his word. So see fundamentally the difference, the different approach to reading the Bible between legalism and how the Bible encourages us to read it. Legalism would say, you must study the Bible to obey God so that he'll be pleased with you and maybe you'll earn a little love from him. That's like saying you need to go to this chateau in the Swiss Alps and study the window as, an, as a thing in and of itself. Oh man, there's a little smudge up here in the corner. There's a spider web down here. It's a little you know, disfigured at one point. Now the way that the Bible actually calls us to read scripture is that we get to look through the windows to behold God's glory. We get to behold the glory of God in the pages of scripture. Like what? We get to do that. We get to behold God's glory every day. And God is not just some inanimate mountain range. You actually get to commune with him. You get to learn about him, understand his character, grow in a love for him as you learn of his love for you. This is what beholding God in scripture is like. I remember the first time that I really began to behold Christ in scripture and his beauty. And I was in college and knew that I needed to be having a devotional time, a quiet time in God's word, though I wouldn't have considered that time as beholding Christ or being with Christ. I, I very adamantly approached that time. Um, I, did, I wouldn't have known it, but approached that time legalistically. And so I went into a Lifeway bookstore on a Christmas break um, when those existed uh, to grab a short devotional, one of short meditations, so that I could get my devotions done with in a timely manner. I grabbed a book that had the word meditations on the front cover, hoping that this would be a book of quick reads, um, that I could do my, do my time in devotion and then move on. I, I didn't anticipate that this book would have such a life-changing effect on my life. It had life-changing meditations on scripture. I knew that I desired God in my life. And so the title stood out to me, but I had no idea about the author, John Piper, and, and, was, and really didn't care. What I found in that book, though, that I picked up off the shelf was Christ held out before me in Scripture. The sovereignty of God and salvation was expounded biblically in a way that I had never seen before. Scripture after Scripture was placed before me as I read this book and was explained in a helpful way. But ultimately, I began to see the glory of the Lord began to behold the glory of God through scripture and he was graciously, he was gracious to me and he was gloriously beautiful to my soul. This kind of beholding won't be accomplished in the usual hurriedness of life. 
You know the hurriedness, the busyness that you find yourself in. I don't have time. In the discipleship pathway assessment that like I said this morning, over 100 people, have, 150 people have filled out the most selected answer to the question of what is an obstacle in your life of drawing close to God was lack of time. Hurry, distraction, and noise are the greatest threats to you beholding Christ. Let me say that again. Hurry, distraction, and noise are the greatest threats to you beholding Christ's glory, to you becoming Christ-like. You must behold his glory. If you don't have time to behold Christ, you won't become like him. You must slow down. You must stop. You must find a quiet place. We must take a moment to remember God's nickname, Emmanuel. That God is with us. He is with you, closer to you than your very breath. And I want you to try something this week. I want you to grow in an awareness of God's presence with you. When you're waiting in line at a grocery store or, or pumping gas into your car or driving or using the restroom, anything that involves a period of waiting, instead of pulling out your phone, to be distracted with news and notifications, take time to remember that God is with you. Allow your attention to be drawn to his nearness. Before you enter family gatherings this week, remember God's nickname, Emmanuel, God with us. Slowing down, being still, and practicing silence may seem inconceivable on a large scale. And so my advice, start small. Start small. That's why we take 20 to 30 seconds at the beginning of each service because we recognize that that might be the only 20 to 30 seconds of silence that you had all week. Practice this in your own life. Take 20 to 30 seconds before you open up your Bible or the Dwell app and just pray a simple little prayer. Lord, let me behold your beauty in scripture. Or show me Christ. I wanna behold him in scripture. Or before you interact with a difficult person, breathe deeply and remember Emmanuel. Pray, Lord, let, let me behold your glorious creativity in this person. And let me love this person more for where they will be than where they are at. We've kind of hit the brakes here at this point in the sermon because it's what I think the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to behold Christ. The transforming work of the Spirit is by beholding Christ. So let's let him work. Let's behold Christ, though. Let's, over the next remaining five to 10 minutes of this sermon, let's, let's let our attention be captivated by the glorious beauty of Christ. I've selected some passages of scripture and some verses from some Christmas hymns which are uniquely rich. And I want for the next few minutes to behold the glory of the Lord with you. You might choose to close your eyes and just listen. 
You might wanna jot down which passages I'm reading. I'm not gonna explain any passages after I read them. I'm just gonna let scripture do the talking. You may also just wanna grab a phrase and pray that back to God. So let's gaze at Christ here in our, our final five to 10 minutes. Let's gaze at Christ, beholding the glory of the Lord through his word. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is verse four from the first Noel. Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord who hath made heaven and earth of naught and with his blood mankind hath bought. Psalm 27, four and five. One thing I have asked of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord for all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Matthew 9, 10 to 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is verse four and verse two and verse four of O come all ye faithful. 
God of God, light of light, eternal. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Romans 3, 21 to 26 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse one of O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O oh, hear the angel voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night when Christ was born. In the second part of verse two of O Holy Night, the King of Kings lay in a lowly manger, in all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. Behold your king before him, lowly bend. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his, of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 13 to 20. Father, show us Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. One more. 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I hope you beheld Christ. We behold Christ in scripture. Behold him in prayer. Behold him in fellowship as others around you are being transformed into Christ's image. Look for that. Behold the glory of the Lord. And let God's word just so saturate you, so fill you, that when trials come, and when suffering comes, which it will, when persecution comes, when good times come, you ooze scripture. Be transformed into the same image of Christ by beholding Christ. We become Christ-like as we behold Christ. Let's pray.